0: Hello and welcome. I'm Brendan Store, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. And I am Joseph Camo, host of the Cardinal Rule YouTube channel. And this is Weird Together, where we talk about the latest and greatest in independent horror films, because we're weird and you're weird. So why not be weird together?
1: Weird Together is part of the Ghost Story Guys family, which also includes the podcast Mysteries and Monsters, Luke Lore, and Transmissions from the Void. Yes, sir. And this, Joseph, is our very first
0: audio-only version of Weird Together. Technically, I believe it will be our seventh episode, but it will be our first audio-only. How do you feel?
1: It's a little bit different, right? It's, I'm, I'm so used to doing the YouTube live stream thing and, and, and kind of the interactive part of that, which I certainly love. Uh, but, but there's certainly something nice, I guess, about being able to kind of prepare a little bit differently for, for a podcast and and uh, it'll be an interesting experience, I think.
0: Absolutely. And I, I, of course, am much more comfortable in the recorded medium. So I, I've been looking forward to this because while I enjoy the live streams, I enjoy the interaction with the audience, I am unaccustomed to being on camera. So I've, I've been looking forward to this. And I've, I feel like we've really chosen an auspicious film <laughs> with which to open the audio portion of the programming. And of course, that is Skinamarink. Now, Skinnamarink is a brand new film. It was just dropped on Shutter on February 2nd. It is the directorial debut of Edmonton, Alberta-based director, Kyle Edward Ball. And it, well, I'm, I'm going to use the language because uh, someone has to, uh, it tells the story, heavy air quotes of siblings, Kevin and Kaylee, and they wake up one night to find their father gone all the doors and windows of the house disappeared. And they realize as they wander the house in the dark that there's something else there with them too. And I I tell you, Joseph, I want to see that movie. I really want, I mean, we'll get to (laughs) it, we'll get to it, but I really want to see that movie. I I look, whenever that, whenever that's coming out, this hour and 40 minute trailer (laughs) we watched, I can't wait for that movie. But uh, before we talk about the film, as always, you got to acknowledge that you never go into any film completely clean. With every film, you got baggage. All right, Joseph. So what was your baggage heading into Skin and Marink* if any?
1: Well, you know, I wasn't familiar. I think it was a directorial debut. So I guess I wouldn't be familiar with the director's work. Um, it was. I yeah. hadn't heard of it. You, you, you shared a brief description of it with me. You mentioned it was very stylized. As as a parent of two, two children who are older than these children, but certainly I remember it wasn't too long ago in my life when I, my children were the age is of Kaylee and Kevin, I had a feeling this might hit me a little differently um, okay. from that perspective. So you know, as a parent, your worst nightmare is a situation where your children need you and you are not able to help them, right? So right. I, that was probably my baggage going in wondering how it was going to hit those notes for me.
0: Okay, well, my bag of in was, I had heard that it was the new experimental horror film that everyone was talking about. I heard that it had debuted at Fantasia Fest in 2022 and they had planned a Halloween 2023 release, but then the film leaked online. A screener copy was leaked by, uh, by one of the festivals, no, I shouldn't say by the festival, but by someone who had access to festival screeners. And it was a, it was a sensation. It, it just blew up, especially among Gen Z's. Uh, Gen Z's, Jesus sounds old, but among Gen Z on TikTok and places like this, it was apparently everyone was talking about it as the scariest thing they had ever seen. So I went in with high expectations, but at the same time, I also went in acknowledging, I knew it was a very low budget film. It was shot for $15,000 Canadian. I might add, which is like $80 American. (laughs) (laughs) And so it it was, and it was crowdfunded. It was crowdfunded through the Seed and Spark platform. So again, I knew that as always, when you're dealing with that little amount of money, you have to temper your expectations. And so I I went in looking forward to it. I saw this in theaters. I saw it at Cinema Park here in Montreal a couple days before it went wide. And I, I will say for a horror film of this scale, it's done surprisingly well. I mean, I think it's, as we talk right now, I think it sits around $2 million gross, which again, given the outlay and they probably didn't spend a ton of marketing, that's a, that's a success, you know, it's, and considering the film, which we'll get into, (laughs) that is a colossal victory. And so as we've alluded to, there is, there's a lot to talk about with Skidamarink, which is perhaps surprising given it's a film where not much happens, uh, spoiler. But of Mm -hmm. course there's only one place two handsome gentlemen like us can have that conversation. And that's a Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. All right, Joseph, here we are. We're in the Toctagon, right. the, f- the film crafted by one of my Canadian countrymen, Kyle Edward Ball from the city of Edmonton, which is a surprisingly nice city. You know, Alberta is a kind of a conservative province. We like to say it's our Texas. And mm. Edmonton is like our Austin. Uh, okay. Maybe not, not gotcha. as cool, but it's still a, it's, right. Edmonton's a surprisingly cool city. Uh, I quite like it there. And had I not ended up in Montreal, Edmonton was a real possibility. But I digress. Why don't you get us started with some of your thoughts on Skinnamarink?
1: Right off the bat, there's sort of the stylized thing, right? It's sort of that you described it as an experimental film, and I, I think that's a good way to describe it. And it really seems like they're trying to emulate the 16 millimeter retro kind of style. And you can probably articulate what that is better than I can. And I think, I, you know, I had mentioned something that to you and you, in, you indicated that it was not actually filmed on 16 millimeter. So when I looked at it more closely, I watched, and just because I'm anal retentive like this, I started watching the the artifacts on on the film, like the little scratches you, you think you see, you know, in, in, in 16 millimeter film. And I noticed that they started repeating in a pattern. I was like, oh, okay. there There is an effect that has been applied. There's just these little, like, I saw this one little shape, almost like a circle crescent thing that just popped up on this one side every 30 seconds to a minute with some other shapes. And and, and just, you know, so they, like they had this overlay that gives it that look. And it just kept repeating. And then at, then at one point, I saw that it, like, it flipped. And that thing was on the other side, but it was the same shape. So... <laughs> You know, if you're not looking for that, you're not going to catch that. But because I, you know, I was looking for, it. so so you can tell they th- was very intentional to achieve that look, right? Uh, they they put a lot of so they created this sort of grainy uh, look with with all those visual artifacts, and and then the you know the audio, I you know I don't know if that was pure audio or an effect, but there certainly was this crackling kind of grainy quality to it that is also from that era. And I will say that even though they did this through artificial means, at least for the visual, that was one of the strengths of the film, (laughs) maybe the only strength of the film, but uh, (laughs) like something about that crackling audio and the grainy visuals and the darkness. And and then the, the the televisions and the cartoons created almost a hypnotic effect. And, And those things along with this concern or fear or anticipation or anxiety of what might emerge from that darkness, it just kind of drew you in. And like for the first 20, 30 minutes, I was into it. Not just like, oh, what's the, I wasn't even paying attention to the story. Just, I was almost kind of lulled into, drawn into the whole vibe, almost hypnotized. It was engaged, but that lasted only about 20 or 30 minutes of the film.
0: So you you are correct. This was shot digitally. I've read in interviews with Ball that, uh, yeah, they shot with a Sony uh, Sony cam, and then they he had purchased a bunch of 16 millimeter grain overlays, presumably for mm-hmm. Premiere Pro or Final Cut Pro, and those were what they used to simulate the effect, kind of mm-hmm. color grading them differently. But as, as you say, there's there are finite variations, and you can notice them. I actually didn't notice that uh, when I saw it the first time, but yeah, definitely that was the case. And with the mm-hmm. sound, no sound was recorded at the time. No sound was recorded. Yeah on set, it was all added in post. And I, I don't know the specifics about uh, the crackling, but I, yes, I, I assume that was all, that, that's all intentionally added in post. And I agree, it, it creates this, as you said, this, this hypnotic mood where you're not sure what's happening, you're not sure what's coming. And I had a similar experience to you, cause again, I saw this in theaters. So seeing this in theaters, you know, it's, it's your whole field of vision. Hmm. And I was, I was, for me, it was about the same point, about 20, 30 minutes in. Where my thought was, oh shit, this is going to be the whole movie. <laughs> right. And I'm not unfamiliar with experimental horror films. I mean, you, I very much doubt you've seen Reflections of Evil. Nope. <laughs> okay. So Reflections of Evil is a film by a guy named Damon Packard. Uh, I think it was his first feature, but I could be wrong. It is fucking nuts mm. Just to not put too fine a point on it. It's insane. It is like living in someone's anxiety attack for two hours and 15 minutes. It's impossible for me to describe to you, but this mentally, I'm going to say, I I believe he is a mentally disturbed man, inherited half a million dollars from a a dead relative and created this absolutely bonkers uh, odyssey and pressed something like 20,000 DVDs and mailed Mm -hmm. them all over Hollywood and gave them to homeless people to give away and left them around. And it's just this insane this insane, in, in some ways it's not, it's not all that different. I mean, he's sort of emulating the seventies and ball is emulating the seventies. Uh, even though the film is set in 1995, he said he intentionally chose a seventies aesthetic and the difference is there is, there is kind of a narrative through line to reflections of evil, even though it's insane. And I suppose there is too, to, um, to Skinnamarink, but it's so fragmented. Yeah. It, it's, it just, it takes narrative and just kind of shines it through a, a like a prism and it, it becomes, it just, yeah, fragments into all these different pieces and, and really you never are seeing, very rarely are you ever directly looking at anything. You're, you're yeah. looking at a corner of the ceiling, you're looking at a, a, a fra- like a fragment of the ground, you're looking at a, a shaft of light. And yeah, I, I, again, I had about 20 minutes. I thought to myself, oh shit. This is a hundred minutes and this is all it's going to be, which is not to say there weren't things I appreciated about it, but there was a sinking feeling. And that 20, 30 minute limit, his trial run for this was a a short called Heck because uh, Kyle Ball cut his teeth on these, pardon me, on his YouTube channel called uh, Bite Size Nightmares, where he would make little short films based on descriptions of his listeners or his viewers' nightmares. And yeah, the proof of concept was one of these called heck, which runs exactly, I believe like 28 minutes and 40 seconds. And sometimes this happens. Sometimes you'll see a filmmaker will make a a short and it's really successful. And then they're hired to make a full length version of that. And the, the central idea doesn't always hold up, you know, like, like smile, uh, Parker Mm -hmm. Finn's smile, which was a massive hit for Paramount last year. I liked it. It's fine. But apparently the short is great, uh, expanded to full length, I felt not as good. Again, you know, they're laughing all the way to the bank, so what the fuck do I know? But it, 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 I felt it suffered for the full runtime. So yeah, you and I were in uh, the similar boat and I I don't know about you, I fell asleep multiple times (laughs) in the theater and I snored Joseph. This was not a proud moment. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I did not fall asleep, but I it, it struggled to keep my attention. I mean, I you know I watched it once it through, made my notes, but yeah, you know when you talk about that, like th- when I when I when I was watching this, I and I thought about what was going on. I put I made this note. There's this term that I came across in what I do professionally in terms of like as an academic uh, that I just it just it flashed to me that this term really described what was going on here and the term is methodological fetishism. Uh, okay. And you can probably figure what the roughly what the word or the phrase means. It, it's a term used in research to describe a situation in which in research sense the research methods are being prioritized over the data analysis and findings. Well, in this context, it felt like the film the filmmaker was so enamored with his stylized approach that he the art form of the, of the sounds and the visuals and and the camera angles were so front and center that he didn't give appropriate attention to things like pacing and story and narrative. He got, he got, he became, you know, he fetishized his method and, and ignored some other key parts. At least that's how it felt to me as a viewer.
0: Yeah. Uh, Again, I I think the bones are there. The bones are there. Uh, I just think that it needs to be at most 80 minutes. Okay. I think at most, maybe even I 75, true. I mean, even 60. The streaming thing is changing the way people think of movies. So Host, directed by Rob Savage, was a massive hit in 2021, I think it was. Maybe 2022, I think Which was 2021, Which be, for, because it was filmed it, during lockdown via Zoom. And it was mm. brilliant. It, it's an excellent film, scary as shit. And I think it, it clocks in around 56 minutes which is perfect. And I mean, okay, fine. Would I necessarily want to pay? Well, actually I probably would pay a full price to go see a good horror movie. That's 56 minutes in theaters. But, um, I think that would have been a much better format or, you know, a 30 minute YouTube video. I mean, (laughs) that's, that's it. Um, but again, I think there may be a generational disconnect here because like Mm -hmm. I said, this has been a massive success with, with people basically young enough to be our kids. Uh, because okay. again, people on TikTok were talking about this being the scariest film they'd ever seen, the most horrifying wow. thing, you know? And, and a lot of the reviews are, well, a lot of the reviews are either I wanted to die or five stars <laughs> right? and I kind of fall somewhere in the middle, but the people who give it five stars that they got yeah, like, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen. It scared the shit out of me. Uh, you know, the, the, the fear of not knowing what's coming is so much scarier than, you know, a monster. And Joseph, I'm old enough to remember these same reviews for the Blair Witch Project. Mm
1: -hmm. I was thinking the same thing. This is this generation's, and I think other people have said that about this film. I think I saw. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I
0: I can't imagine that's uh, me coming up with original observation. But um, yeah, I and I didn't like the Blair Witch Project
1: either. Okay. And I, I saw it I in the theater and it, it, it impacted me, but uh, of course I wasn't necessarily, I didn't have the most developed palette for film at that point in my life, but.
0: I mean, not, yeah. neither did I. I was, uh, what was I when it was, I was 15 when it came out and, you mm-hmm. know, I saw it in Revelstoke at the, the, the uh, Roxy Theater and I, you know, they even left the house lights on a little bit because they didn't want people to, I don't know, lose their fucking mm-hmm. minds or something. And I just, I don't know, it, did, it, it was cool, but it, it didn't frighten me. And I kind of felt that way about Skinner Ring. The only times I was really frightened, I mean, there was the obvious jump scares, you know, the famous uh, children's telephone toy, which everyone's been talking about and has kind of become the piece of kind of key art from the film, you know, and and for those, it's like a Fisher Price telephone, you know, with a smiley face on it.
1: Everyone Uh, had that when they were from our generation.
0: Exactly. When they were a kid. And and Bull talks about that in an interview, he said that. He wrote it into the script and he thought to himself, okay, Jesus, now I got to find one of these things. And (laughs) his mom said, well, you know, you used to play with one when you were a kid, there's one downstairs. It it just, it was in a tote. So it it all worked out very well. Um, Because the film was shot in Ball's childhood home.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting.
0: Yeah. And that may partially, I think not entirely, because I think it was an intentional choice from the get go. I think it was part of the, the DNA of the film, but partially explained some of the shots because he was saying in an interview that The film is set in 95 and his parents' home has been modernized since then. So there are portions of it that look nineties, but much of it looks much more modern, for example, the kitchen, he said, if they were going to shoot the kitchen, they had to underlight it because the kitchen is too modern to, to pass for the nineties. So, yeah. So again, I, as far as that goes, I I don't have that same, I, I didn't find it terrifying, but again, there must be something. But what, what kind of caught yeah. me, man, was this is popular among Gen Z who are kind of noted for not having great attention spans. That's sort of the, mm-hmm. the cliche joke about Gen Z is, you know, they, they have these minute attention spans, but I mean, Jesus Christ, I had such a hard time paying attention to this thing.
1: Yeah. You know, you mentioned the Blair Witch Project and it's interesting because not only, like, it does feel like its place in in society or kind of in pop culture right now feels like the Blair Witch Project did in, in its time Yep. Uh, but there was also some parts of it that more directly reminded me of that or in one particular part the the scenes with the what I'm assuming was the mother sitting on the bed yes that very much gave me the vibes that the you know the end reveal and if you haven't seen Blair Witch Project by now and I'm spoiling it it's your it's own 24 okay, so, years old too bad <laughs> you've got you've had 24 fucking years to, to <laughs> see this film. but uh you know at the end of the blair witch project the part where you see you know that the the victim standing in the corner or that you know waiting to for their turn to be killed uh that that trance they're in or whatever it is seeing the mother sitting there felt like that
0: that was actually a really effective moment for me Mm -hmm. And there have been some posts on Reddit where people have kind of theorized about what's happening in the film. And one that I kind of buy is that the mother at some point killed herself Mm. and that the daughter saw it. Because at the beginning of the film, when the father disappears, the kids say to each other, where did dad go? And the other one's and I can't remember who says what, but the other one says, maybe he went with mom. And then I believe it's the daughter says, I don't want to talk about mom. And that's if you, and if you watch the scene where she's speaking to the, the back of her mother, the mother says, go downstairs. And then the next sound sounds like bones snapping,
1: hmm.
0: like cracking. And you hear what's almost what? sounds like a choking, the implication being that the mother hung herself. And that's why they don't want to talk about the mother because she killed herself. And what they're saying is maybe dad did that too.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, okay. and, and in those moments, I will say it actually played better because I, I did re-watch, I us say about 80% of it this afternoon or early this evening. And I actually think it plays better at home because okay. I, you know, I think there's something about the isolating nature of it, this, that idea of being a small child, totally alone
1: mm-hmm.
0: and yeah, because your, your parental figure, the person you rely on, they're not there. And I'm sure this is something you can speak to much more like having kids and thinking about that. But it is effective in establishing atmosphere. You know, this idea that the light of the television is the only place that's safe. Right. right. And you hear noises and you don't know what they are. Uh, and, and there was something that Ball said in, in an interview, he said that the most common nightmare people would write to him about for his bite-sized nightmare channels or channel is one people would describe as remembering from their childhood, which was, you know, he said it was always the same. I'm between the ages of six and 10, I'm in my house my parents are dead or missing or incapacitated there's a monster or a threat of some sort and i have to deal with it that kept coming up so what do you think about that as someone again with both with kids and with your your background
1: yeah no that makes sense i mean that that seems like a type of thing that that people would would have as a nightmare as a child you know how dependent you are on your parents for me, I think what, what resonates with me is the, you know, the inverse of that, right. Is being the parent and imagining my children in that situation. I mean, you know, I know this is very morbid, but like, you know, one of my worst nightmares is that I pass and my kids are here and I'm with them and no one else is here and they're left. What do we do? Right. You know, and I know it's a very morbid thing to think about, but like, that's like the nightmare, right. Or or they're in a situation where they need my help and I'm not there, as I mentioned before. And can only imagine how traumatizing that would be you know because when you're a child you know you're not like us and you haven't been hopefully uh, sadly many children do have very rough uh you know circumstances very early but you haven't been as jaded or as beat up by the world as we adults have right and if you are a child who's been fortunate enough not to be immersed in trauma right from early ages you still have this feeling of safety and security with your parents and that Mommy and daddy will fix things, whatever it is, and they can fix things. And to be a child and lose that, that just feels like the most terrifying thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I have to wonder how much of those nightmares come, maybe are rooted in many traumas from those periods in our lives when we start to realize that our parents can't protect us from everything. I, you know, I don't know, but that makes sense why that would be resonant with people.
0: Yeah. And I wonder if there's any kind of correlation between that fear and the modern child rearing environment where you have both parents working, you know, maybe again, I don't know the data. I could be totally, cause obviously I don't have kids. I had a vasectomy to make sure I don't have kids, but you know, I, I, so I don't know if that's true, but I wonder if, if there is a, maybe a greater sense of instability with young people from a certain era, because during that time their parents weren't able to be around, you know, because again, the economic situation was such. There wasn't a parent at home, you know, you were working.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, they, when I was, they used to use the term latch key children, you know, when I was, when I was a kid and I, you know, go home from school, parents are so at work and you, you know, have a key to the house and you get in the house and you're there. And, um, I kind of grew up that way and yeah, I could see that.
0: I remember when I was a kid, this, one of my, one of my most memorable nightmares was I was at my grandparents' house. My grandparents' house was always like a safe place for me. Uh, I mean, there were spooky parts of it, but, um, you know, I always, I loved going there and in the dream I'm upstairs and my, my relatives, my, like my grandparents, my aunt and my uncle and my mom and my dad, they all want to play a game. And I'm, I'm totally enthused about this cause this was not something that would ever happen. And so they said, okay, well you go downstairs and get the game and we'll like, come back up, we'll play it with you. And so I run downstairs, I get the game and when I come back up, the light has shifted and they're not them anymore. They're in, in some ways they're similar to what Kaylee sees, uh, before she disappears, where there is a face and it's all kind of, it's, it's the person, but it's not really them anymore. They're almost like, they're like a zombie, like a kind of a featureless zombie. And I, I remember that. So it, it is, yeah, I guess everyone has their version of that.
1: So we we're talking about how this reminded us of the Blair Witch Yes. There's another film actually though, that this reminded me of, and it's a little, it's actually going even further back. Oh, okay. There were some things about this film that reminded me of the 1983 film Twilight Zone, the movie.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. So yeah.
1: do you remember, have you seen the film? The, I have. The Twilight Zone film? Yep. Nope. Okay. So you know, there's if if you're familiar with the film, it's got different segments, right? And the segment I'm referring to is the one with the boy who can sort of control reality. He can yeah, wish things it, into existence. Okay, and if you've seen it, there's a scene, and you might know where I'm going with this, where his sister is in a room watching cartoons by herself, and you just see her from the back at first, and you know the boy is talking to the woman who. The adult woman who is kind of there to kind of make sure he's okay if you've know if you've seen the film you know the story and, and they just kind of pass by the sister and he's like well no he just kind of leads them on and and then they then they switch the camera and you see her and as it zooms out you see that she's sitting there watching the cartoons and she has no mouth yes and and the idea is he made her mouth go away because she used to call him a monster or something like that so the combination of the, the kind of the vintage obscure cartoons they use in this film, and the television, the lighting. and if you remember, there's actually a, theres there's a line that the disembodied voice says later, the creepy voice says, she said she wanted to see her mom. So I took her mouth away. says that about Kaylee.
0: Yeah. like
1: so the combination of that line, the cartoons and the strobing lighting, um, just all reminded me, and I don't know if it's an intentional homage to that film in any way, but it reminded me of that just popped in my mind, that that scene from from that Twilight Zone film.
0: Well, I think it's significant that 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 the Twilight Zone film and Marink and another film, Poltergeist, all yeah. have these heavy uses of of this television imagery of people of children being bathed in the light of the television. And, uh, I was, I think it was slash film who made the connection to Poltergeist, so I, I can't claim to have, have made that for myself, but. They said that for Carol Ann, you know, Carol Ann liked to watch TV and just like the little girl in Twilight Zone and just like the kids in this. And it got me thinking, you know, for Kyle Edward Balk, I, I think he's younger than you and I are, I believe he's in his late twenties, early thirties, I think at the most, but we are really the last generation for whom the television was the only connection to the outside world. You know, I remember being awake late at night, and again, everyone's in bed, and you're. For me, it wasn't the thought of oh, there's people, there's a monster in the house. It was just that you know, there's no one around. There's no, I'm the only person awake, and the TV was a constant stream of other people. It was a connection, and I think again for for kids now, I think that that is represented by social media. You know, that is their sense of like connection. But for me, again, you know, being I'm, I'll be 40 here next month. Uh, when I when I hurt my when I was kind of dealing with plantar fasciitis last year, I found myself, I was laid up quite a bit and how I connected when I couldn't sleep. For me, it was still the television. I, I watched a lot of the live news from Al Jazeera, you know, because over in Qatar, it was the middle of the morning and it was like, okay, there's people who are awake and that made me feel yeah. connected to the world. And so again, it, it's that, that television as escape, which again, I think is very indicative of that era. And something that I, I have to say, I feel like he captured well, whether or not it was an intentional homage to Twilight Zone, the movie, and Poltergeist or not. I, I think that's something the film did very, very well.
1: Yeah. There, there's something about those cartoons and that and, and that dynamic thing about that's also just very lonely and unsettling as well. You know? Oh, I yeah. Mean, well,
0: I, the cartoons in the film are all public domain. They're pre-1950s. I that,
1: that worked because – it like, I, obviously they did that in part, at least for a budget, but, but it also, man, damn, if it didn't set the tone, right? Those cartoons were really the right tone for that.
0: It sort of disconnected you from time from, from a time. Cause he said that, uh, in an interview, he said, you know, what he would in a perfect world, they would have been watching the lion king or, okay. uh, homeward bound because that would have been the stuff that, but I think in a way that that would have been too familiar whereas these these cartoons which are again are completely disconnected from the era in which the film is set in 1995 again the, the films these cartoons are all in the public domain from uh, prior to 1950 it sort of set it in this weird twilight world where you felt completely removed from everything around you so even even the sort of alleged safety of the television where it connects you to the world it's not actually connecting you to anything it felt like this like this dead end so you really are in the world because again, as we learn throughout the course of the film, Kaylee and Kevin, I think, have been they've been kind of taken to a, a this is, you know, my interpretation, and, and it's sort of backed up by what I've read. They've been taken to this alternate version of this of, of their of their house, this alternate world by this creature. And again, it though the film stylistically, I think it, it just keeps tripping on its own dick and makes it really hard to get, at least for old fuckers like us, to connect with. I think it, it, in those moments, it, it is very effective. And I'll be honest with you, even though I wasn't crazy about it when I saw it at DuParc, um, you know, two weeks ago and rewatched it last night, it, it has stayed with me, not the jump, scary moments, not the ringing telephone and all that shit, but just the, the sound of the television echoing in an empty room through that static and the voice of little kids who are scared and alone and doing their best to comfort each other, that really, yeah, that, that lodged in my head.
1: Yeah. The thing this film did best was that tone, creating that tone. The, the problems were it went too long with it, and it didn't give enough narrative and anything else. But the overall feel, I mean, that nailed that. It, like It hit it out of the park with the feel. It captured the re- something really interesting, but once it captured it, it's, it's like it didn't know what to do with it. Is is how I felt about that.
0: Yeah, it, I was thinking about about where Ball goes from here because when you have a, a breakout success like this, like again, two million dollars is not a huge amount of money, but again, relative to what it cost, it is. Usually you hear right away that the filmmaker has been signed to something else. You know, typically that happens. Whereas with Ball, I haven't heard that yet. Now, admittedly, again, the release schedule was was sped up because I, I guess what happened is he had signed a deal with uh oh i can't remember the name of the distributor basically the, the, the shutter i think it was ifc midnight and shutter but then the thing leaked and now something like that could scuttle a deal and i he, he said he was very scared of that but in the end what happened is that they just rolled with it and said no we're going to move up the release so it could just be that there hasn't been the amount of time for him to get signed but i i also wonder if maybe conventional producers and conventional studios are looking at this and going yeah i don't i can't do anything with this guy for example, going back to Damon Packard and Reflections of Evil, that was a fucking bonkers movie and it was a wholly original movie and, and you know if you look at stuff like Greasy Strangler or um oh who's that other guy Tom Six uh the caterpillar human centipede guy there were fucked up movies so you know you could imagine Damon Packard going on to make you know more studio movies but or to, to make really gross out indie movies but I think people looked at the film and realized, I can't do anything with this person. And again, I, I wonder, I do wonder if, if his his fractured style in Skinner will limit his potential going forward, you know, his, his sort of more YouTube oriented style. Uh, and, and I hope not, you know, again, because, hey, I'm all for uh, successful Canadian filmmakers. But I do wonder if the very particular style of it w- may be hobbling uh his ability to find to sort of sign larger projects and of course it's entirely possible that he has signed it and it just hasn't been announced you know the one interview i read with him suggested that he would had some meetings but that's pretty common after a breakout success the meetings don't necessarily mean anything until you know you've got a firm offer
1: i think you bring up an interesting point a production company or studio is going to look at that style and and ask can they do something marketable with it and it makes me wonder is this something that can sustain an entire genre, or is it just this independent piece of art that just has to stand there as its one time thing, right? Like the found footage thing is there's enough to that that it can sustain a genre, right? Jalo can sustain a genre, but is this style something that can sustain a whole genre or subgenre, or does this just have to be a moment in time where there was this one film that was unique? and it captured something. But other, fi- if other films try to do that, it would just be too derivative. And and there wasn't enough there to sustain an entire genre.
0: I do think that, and I mean, ultimately who knows, but I, I think that this, this strikes me as a one and done in terms of wider appeal. Do I think there will be other films which attempt this? Sure. Yeah. That, that's just, I think that's inevitable, but what we have with Inc. is such a particular confluence of circumstances—the you know, festival release, the accidental leaking, the the fact it hit TikTok and, and did what it did. These are not things that happen to everyone. To go, as you and I know, going viral is not 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 an easy thing. You really—it's very difficult to arrange that. Maybe not if you've got massive resources and you've got a, like a, a, a say a social media account with a large reach. But if you're on ultra indie project and you're trying to go viral and trying to go viral to the point where you get a distribution deal, that is a very difficult thing.
1: It's weird. Sometimes going viral, not that I've ever done this, but I've, I've listened to people, this within the context that I'm more familiar with YouTube, talk about those dynamics. And sometimes going viral isn't the best thing for you. You you know you, you get a huge audience for this one piece of art, but then you know when you try to recreate it, you can't capture that lightning in a bottle. It's just going to, it's an artifact in time and it was what it was, but people are done with that. And so then you try to build an audience and people just know you for that one thing, right? And building an audience with a more sustainable style takes more time. Uh, And that's why you have filmmakers, you know, filmmakers who uh, maybe don't go as viral as this film does, but have more sustainable long-term careers because the films they do, uh, you know, they can continue doing that type of art uh, and they're building an audience with that style. And it's not about a flash in the pan sort of viral thing. I wonder how many of the, the people who've seen this film are actually people who are going to repeatedly watch indie films and how much are people or that just kind of this thing caught their attention, just like, you know, Blair, Witch project caught people's attention, you know, decades right. ago.
0: Yeah, it, I was, I was thinking that myself, I was thinking about Blair Witch actually, because Blair Witch was a colossal success, you know, gross 100, 100, plus million dollars on a budget, an initial production budget, at least of I want to say about 30,000, thereabouts, something like that. But after that, they, they've tried to make it a franchise. There was Blair Witch 2, yeah, Book of Shadows, which <laughs> there you go, yeah. So Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows, which is fine. It's not terrible. It's a, it's, you know, more, um, what's what I'm sort of looking for? Uh, it's a more straightforward narrative, you know, it, it's uh conventionally shot. And then there was the found footage sequel from 2016-ish thereabouts directed by, I want to say, was it Adam Wingard who directed that one? And it's fine. It's not, it's not great. And it just, it never really caught. As you say, it was, it was sort of lightning in a bottle, the first film. And the directors of that, I mean, really they didn't go on to massive careers you know, Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. I mean, Myrick, Myrick has made a couple of good films or at least one good film. He made the objective in 2008, which was, yeah, it was a solid, um, sort of quasi gin, uh, you know, a military horror film, which I, I'm always a sucker for military horror. And Eduardo Sanchez has had a pretty, you know, he's had a reasonable career directing the odd episode of television. He did an episode of Yellow Jackets, uh, which is a very popular show right now. But yeah, he, he didn't become a, a James Wan or, um, Uh, what's his name from upgrade, uh, Leigh you know, he didn't become one of those guys. And again, I think the virality of the film, as you say, it's, it doesn't guarantee anything. So time will tell whether or not we get, uh, you know, whether, whether ball has a career. And again, I I hope he does. I truly does. I truly do because the more Canadians out there making movies, I'm all for it. (laughs) And I want to see him evolve this, you know, if he is going to make, more movies and, and continue honing his craft, then I'm, I'm very curious to see what that looks like, you know, and, and I'm hoping that it's not a, a one trick pony situation where every film from this is just sort of a, a variation on, on a theme, like, like Oren Pelley from Paranormal Activity. I really like par- the first Paranormal Activity, Paul from Ghostory Guys, he and I disagree on this. He hates all those movies, whereas I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm a fan of, of the first and the third and, and Ghost Dimension and, or marked ones rather. And, uh, next of kin, but Oren Pelly directed the first and he didn't direct a film after that for a while. Uh, and he directed, then he directed a film called Area 51, which was delayed and delayed and delayed. And when it finally came out, it was not very good. And he, to the best of my knowledge, he has not directed a film since he's produced, you know, because I I believe he made his fuck you money from Paranormal Activity, but he hasn't, yeah, he hasn't done anything, you know, as, as a director. And I, yeah, I'd hate to see that happen to to Kyle Edward Ball. So I think that's about all I have to say on the subject. Joseph, do you have anything left?
1: What I think I would like to see from him is a more developed storytelling. I, I get that there are these subtexts and these inferences, and you know, it's all the Reddit speculation of the story, and you know, he hits these notes. But um, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a career making film, I feel like you have to have a little bit more developed storytelling in, in your films. You know, the lines were creepy. <laughs> you know, I come upstairs, I'm like, look under the bed, you know, oh, hell no. You yeah. Know? Yeah.
0: The, the notion of something, something that sounds vaguely familiar calling to you from the dark, that like, that's oh, scary as fuck. Oh. But how many times can you do that before it, it you, you, right. you've pounded those notes flat.
1: Right. I will say the, the one line in the film that I think captured how I feel when I was watching it was, uh, can we watch something happy because you, gamble, <laughs> you know, better bet that I'm going to watch something happy after watching this, right?
0: Something that has that, a beginning, middle and end.
1: Yeah. So I, listen, I know we've kind of, you know, had a little bit of fun and we've kind of critiqued it. You know, I like said, a 50, what? $15,000 Canadian made a film that did very well, better than I could do. <laughs> you know, I'm yep. not a filmmaker. There are some really wonderfully brilliant things he captured right its It's like someone who's got this skill, it just it it isn't refined. it needs to be further developed. but the feeling he captured and the visuals and the sound and the atmosphere, i mean there's there's an eye there, absolutely oh
0: yeah hundred percent.
1: so I'd be intrigued to see you know what he does with that eye developing it further. But there's some skill there, and and I'd be interested in seeing you know what's next for the, this filmmaker
0: absolutely. So Kyle Edward Ball, we wish you the best of luck from two total strangers on the internet and whatever you make <laughs> next, we will watch it and maybe we'll even talk about it here on weird together. It's funny, actually, just, just before we go, go to, uh, the boost when the fir- film first came out ball. And, and I think this is a very Canadian thing. He, on his Twitter, he said, uh, you know, if you DM me, I'll, I'll respond. Cause you know, I, I, very much appreciate watching my movie because as Canadians, we cannot possibly envision success. <laughs> and of course the film is a, is a massive success uh, within its sphere. and. He very quickly realized, no, I, I cannot possibly write to all of you. I'm very sorry. And it was kind of cute uh, because, you know, <laughs> on, you know, the ghostry guy scale, I'm that guy. I want to write back to everyone. And then you realize, no, I uh-huh. cannot do this. And he's <laughs> dealing with a, a, a much larger scale than that. So again, I, I think that to me, it means he's a good, he sounds like a good dude. <sighs> yeah. All right. Well, that has been our take on Skinnerink. Before we head out, I'd like to take a quick minute for something we call the boost. So, here on The Boost, we like to shout out uh, if we've seen something that is not going to be part of the main show, but we think you should see anyways. We talk about it Here on The Boost. And I just very quickly want to give a shout out to the 2013 film The Hunted. The Hunted is a found footage film directed by Josh Stewart. Horror fans will remember Josh Stewart from The Collector films. If you are nerdy like me, you will recognize him also from The Dark Knight, where he plays the sniper Barsad. But The Hunted is, I thought it was actually a Bigfoot movie. It is not, but it's, it's a found footage film about two hunters who head out into the woods to uh, film a, a, a hunting YouTube show, essentially. And they end up being chased by something that challenges their understanding of the world. And it's, um, it, yeah, it's a nice tight 90 minutes. I think it's streaming for free on Tubi. Oh no, pardon me. I, I paid to rent it, but I'm sure down in the States it's streaming for free on Tubi or Pluto or something uh but even for 4 bucks, 5 bucks, it's worth your time. It's 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 just a solid found footage flick. And as I have said on the show before, I really like those, you know, last time on the boost I talked about Landlocked and uh In a Stranger's House, and this is this is a bigger budget than both of those probably several times the budget of those combined, but again, those had budgets. Not all that far removed from Skinamarink. So Yes, that is The Hunted, again, 2013, directed by Josh Stewart. And you'll be able to rent that pretty much everywhere. You get your movies online. And as we always say, folks, please don't pirate independent movies. Just don't do it. Every dollar you spend on an independent movie is a vote for more independent movies. If you're going to pirate something, which, you know, we just generally don't recommend you do, pirate big budget shit like Marvel. Every dollar you take from independent producers hurts their ability to make their next film. So don't be that guy. All right. Joseph, where can everyone find you online?
1: You can find me on Twitter at JOKOMO13. And you can also find me on YouTube at The Cardinal Rule and uh, In Search of Ghosts and whatever other channel I'm starting this week.
0: <laughs> Perfect. I'm largely the truth on Twitter and Instagram. As I mentioned, I host the Ghost Story Guys podcast, Book of the Dead, and Transmissions from the Void. You'll find links to all our shows in the show notes. Our theme music is Rest in Peace from the album Music from Big Beige by The Revenants. You can find more from them at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for The Revenants wherever you get your music. We don't have a show email address or anything like that set up yet. We're going to be working on that in the next few days. But for the meantime, if you do want to get in touch, social media is the way to go. And well, I guess that's going to do it. I think so. Until next time, remember, we're weird.
1: And you're weird.
0: So why not be weird? together. Catch you next time, folks.